Now, out of reverence and awe and gratitude for God's written word, let's stand as uh, we read from 1 Kings. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of, my, of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is uh, good to see all of you this morning. Um, and as is our custom before we uh, consider further, not just this passage, but really the entire story of Solomon, I'd like to ask you to join with me in prayer. Father, our hearts are, are thirsty for you. Um, sometimes we are keenly aware of this, feeling uh, worn down in our need for you. Other times we are forgetful, but whether we feel it or not, we are thirsty for you and your word. For in you, in your son is life. And so we ask once again, having just heard your word, 
that you would once again speak to us, that we might drink deep from the well of your wisdom, from who you are, that we might draw near to you and be made more like you. Would your spirit please be present as we listen to you this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin by kind of just asking a a simple question to consider. Do you think that Jesus makes a difference in what you do, in the work that you do, that is? Not, not, Not do you think Jesus makes you a better person or does Jesus make you more content with your work? But does Jesus actually make a difference in the work that you do? So in business, does Jesus help you as you're doing administration or help you make good trades? Or or in school, do you think Jesus helps you get better A's and B's? Or art, you know, if you're a musician or an artist, does Jesus help you figure out more where beauty can be found, make you more capable as a musician or as an artist? What do you think? I suppose there's a couple of questions behind that question, isn't there? One is, does Jesus care? I mean, does Jesus care about interest rates in Excel spreadsheets? Does Jesus care about Algebra 2? Does Jesus care about, you know, a minor key and a diminished fifth? These are, you know, does this matter to Christ? And then even if it does, does following Jesus, should we expect that to make a difference in, in those, I don't know, should we say secular areas of our life? My guess is if you ask most people whether Christians or not, I think the honest answer was, you know, I don't really think so. I think Jesus makes you a better person, probably. Maybe he gives you hope, but it's really more about the spiritual stuff that Jesus is involved, and this really isn't that kind of category. But I hope if you have been with us over the last seven or eight weeks as we have been trying to trace the real story that we see in Scripture of God's redemption that you might have a different answer already in your mind. Because I think this belief that Jesus doesn't get involved in those things is a result, again, of us having too narrow of an understanding of the story of redemption. To think that, that, that God's work in this world is just about Jesus dying so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven, and not realizing that the story in the Bible is much bigger and all-embracing. My hope is that as you are beginning to see, or maybe you've already seen this before, but seeing even more clearly, that God, what he is about, is bringing about his people and his place under his rule, and it's so much bigger that you can answer already, yes. Yes, Jesus does make a difference, even in however secular of a thing it is. He makes a difference in what we do. And if you're wondering, okay, Maybe I'm open to that, but where do we see that in Scripture? Then let me point you to the story that we are looking at today, to this story of Solomon. As I said, that passage that was read comes right at the very end, but I want us to consider the entire story of Solomon. But before we do this, I need to pause to talk about a really important principle in in biblical interpretation called types. Sometimes maybe you've heard of people talk about someone being a type for Christ or typology. It's, it's a weird kind of way of speaking. We don't really speak of it in any other, any other domain, but it's actually really common in Scripture. A type is when God partially fulfills a promise to help people to see what the complete fulfillment will look like one day in the future. If you think about it, the promises that God gives to Abraham 
and then gives again to David, he is speaking of something that is still centuries off. He's ultimately talking about Jesus, as we keep on coming back to. And what's more, he is talking about things when he's telling Abraham, I'm going to make you a great people and a great land, and I will be your God. And David, he tells, I'm going to make a great king for you. What actually this means is beyond their comprehension, that Jesus would die and rise again and begin a kingdom that has no end. This is something that they would not be able to get their minds around. And so when you're talking about a promise that is so big and so far away, it is hard to put your hope and trust in it as God's people. And so God would give foretastes, anticipations, types of what one day the fulfillment would look like so that God's people could see, oh, this is what the promise is going to mean. When I was, I don't know, I think around 10 years old, our family for Christmas gave us just one present, but it was a big one. They gave us the present of that we were going to go to Disney World. We had never been to Disney World before, and I'd only heard about it like through commercials, so it was kind of this vague idea of like nonstop happiness, but I didn't really know what was involved. And, that, and what's more, it wasn't like they were giving us this present and the next day we were going. It was still many months away. So my parents wisely decided they needed to give us something. So under the tree were books, guidebooks for Disney World. Now that wasn't really the present. But I remember like day after day just pouring over page and making, you know, prioritizing, I've got to do Peter Pan, I've got to do Dumbo. And now I, in that moment, I was getting a taste of what the future would be. I was getting a picture. It was helping me hold on to the excitement and anticipation as I was waiting for the promise to completely be fulfilled. And there's a sense that's what God does with these types. He gives these, these tastes, these partial fulfillments in the experience of Israel's history so that they can wait for the final complete fulfillment to take place. And one of the clearest examples of types that we have in all of Scripture is the reign of Solomon. Solomon is the closest you get in the Old Testament to seeing these promises being fulfilled because under Solomon's reign, you have God's people having a might and a prosperity that they had never experienced before. And you have God's temple right there in the middle. And it says they enjoy peace everywhere and people from all nations come to them. They're experiencing glory. This is the closest it will ever get in the Old Testament story to seeing what these promises being fulfilled looks like. But it's not actually the fulfillment. As we see in the passage, and we'll get to that in a moment, Solomon fails, and he shows that he is not the great king that God has promised. He is a son of David. He is a foretaste, a, a kind of guidebook to what it one day will look like, but he is not the king. This is a type. And so it helps us to realize that, because that means when we look at what's going on in the story of Solomon— we should see it kind of like a, a guidebook, a preparation. As we look through it, we understand, oh, this is what God's redemption is going to look like. This is what God's king is going to look like. This is what his people will look like when one day things are completely fulfilled. And here's what we see when we look at the story of Solomon. That when God redeems his people, he gives his leader great wisdom. And that wisdom makes all of the difference. 
And we begin to see that in chapter 3. So chapter 3 is when, when Solomon's story really begins. David, where we left off last week, has now died. And his middle son Solomon, after this kind of contentious battle, is now clearly the king. And so God appears to him in a dream. And God says to Solomon, Solomon, ask of me whatever you want. Now, just to pause for a moment, sometimes I think when we hear a Bible story, for some of us it's so familiar that we don't realize just, just what a moment this is. I mean, this is stuff, you know, like straight from fairy tales or Aladdin, right? It's, you know, here's, here's a wish. But unlike all of those stories where everyone always makes bad wishes, right? You don't have Solomon saying, make me the most powerful and rich king in the universe. He simply says, I am young and I don't really know what I'm doing. And I have a lot of responsibilities to rule over your people. Lord, give me the ability to know the difference between good and evil. And in other words, Solomon's saying, Lord, just give me wisdom to rule well. And so God does exactly that. He gives Solomon wisdom abundantly. Perhaps you notice at the very beginning of the passage that was read, it speaks of how he had wisdom that was greater than anyone in the world and people from all over the world flooded to, to see the wisdom of Solomon. And what we see in the chapters describing Solomon's rule is just how, how variegated, how, how full-orbed, how much of a difference wisdom makes in every sphere of Solomon's rule. So we see wisdom helping him to govern well. Everyone, or probably many of us, have, are familiar with the story of how Solomon is, is having to face this dilemma where there's these two single women who were roommates and both of them had children and one of the infants died in their sleep. And both of them are claiming the one who is alive is their child. And they come to Solomon asking for him to decide. And what does Solomon do? He, he draws his sword and he says, all right, the only fair thing is to cut this living child in half and to distribute it between the two of you. Gruesome, obviously, that he's saying that. And one woman says, okay, that sounds fair. And the other one's like, no, 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 just give it to the other mother. It's, it's, it's hers. And Solomon sees in that moment that that second one is the one who truly cares and says, you are the mother. Take the child that's yours. And what it says is all of the people everywhere around heard about this and it says they were filled with awe at the wisdom of God that was given to him to do justice. He was given wisdom and enabled him to bring justice. But that's not the only thing that we see. If we then just move to chapter 4, what happens next is we get, well, we get a really long list of names. I mean, maybe, maybe this is the chapter, if, 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 if Ruthie were reading today, maybe that's the one I'd have her read just to see her suffer through some more names. But you've got like just a lot of names. And you go, what's going on here? But the point is, these names were names of people that, God, that Solomon put in charge of all sorts of different responsibilities. It shows that Solomon isn't a wise administrator. He's able to see person after person with different gifts, gifts that are different from his own, saying, okay, you're capable, you get in charge of this. You're capable, I want you to do this. He administrates wisely, and the people flourish. And soon after, you see him interacting with another king, negotiating a trade deal and doing it with incredible tact and wisdom so that the king says, blessed be the Lord who has given to David a wise son to rule over the people. And what we're supposed to see here is this wisdom helps Solomon be a good businessman and makes him a better administrator and trader. 
And then we also see Solomon the scientist. It says Solomon writes thousands of Proverbs. We have the book of Proverbs. Many of them are Solomon's. And, and what's more, he writes songs. But it also says he writes about trees. It says, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, he spoke of beasts and of birds, of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear what? The wisdom of Solomon. His wisdom equipped him to be a scientist in a day where there wasn't science, to study, to be the great biologist of his day. And the wisdom gave him capacity for art as well. When he was constructing the temple, it says that he hired someone who, was a great, who had great wisdom in his craft to do a lot of the building of the temple. But the most important part, the Holy of Holies, the center room of the temple, only Solomon was going to do that because he wanted to make it exactly right. And, it, and the implication is his wisdom gave him the ability to make beauty, to construct this Holy of Holies beautifully. And so what we see is this wisdom that God blesses with him, him with that makes him more wise than everyone else gives him the ability to govern, to do business, to do art, to do science. It, it makes a difference with everything. Maybe we ask, why is that? Why is wisdom like this key principle that, that involves all of life? Well, maybe it would be helpful if we just try to define what wisdom is. And in this chapter 3 that I alluded to before, where God and Solomon have this conversation, God says, you, because you have asked for wisdom to do what is right. That's how, that's how God defines this wisdom. And to do what is right, right here, that word doesn't mean moral. It means more what is fitting given the situation. And that's really what wisdom is about. You know, one way of defining wisdom is wisdom is the ability to obey reality. In other words, to see things as they truly are. And as we see things as they truly are, to know what is required of us in that situation and to respond accordingly. It's the ability to obey reality. And if you think about it, you can see how that does make a difference in all of the areas that we've just mentioned. For, for governing, someone who governs wisely is someone who can look beyond the hype, can look beyond the lies, can look upon the, beyond the interest groups, and really see where the problems are and know what is needed to help address those, even if it's at personal cost to himself or herself. Or for business, so many of the business books, one of the things they say is one of the crucial mistakes that people make is they are unwilling to recognize when things are wrong. You know, they try to hide it with, you know, spreadsheets that cover things up. They try not to, to notice that there's a competitor that's catching up, or they don't even notice their own failings. But wisdom involves the ability to see where you are weak, to see where your company needs to be changed, to own up to that and to address it. It's obeying reality. Or even art. A good artist is someone who understands their medium who understands the way that scales work in music or the way that visual design principles work. And what's more, a really good artist is someone who is able to be unswervingly honest, moving away from sentimentality. Again, it's, it's this wisdom of being able to see reality and obey it. And Solomon, we are told, is given this more than anyone else. And here's the reason why. Because Solomon, unlike any of the rulers of any other nation, understands the very heart of wisdom. And he tells us about it in Proverbs. You know, the, he says, 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because God is the one who holds reality together. God is the one who's at the center of things. To try to understand this world without understanding God is, is like trying to understand business without knowing supply and demand or, or trying to understand art without understanding music and skills. God is at the very heart of it. And because Solomon knew reality in its fullness, because he knew God, and because he feared God, which is just saying he treated God as God, he obeyed that reality. That gave him to his very core a wisdom that helped him to see everything more clearly. And it made a difference in everything. And not only for him, but it says when he was wise, through his wisdom, all of the people prospered. There's this beautiful image of how it said, and all of Israel rested, everyone under their own vine and fig tree. And it's this picture of peace and prosperity. The people are made wise. The people are made happy. As wisdom from Solomon and wisdom from God flows down to them, here is a picture of what God's redemption looks like. When God redeems his people, he doesn't just make them more righteous. He doesn't just show them his love. He floods them with wisdom. He makes the ruler wise, and that makes all of the difference. Now, as we've already said, Solomon is not the fulfillment. He is a son of David, but he is not the son of David that God promised back in 2 Samuel 7. We saw that in the chapter that was was read. That even though Solomon began in the fear of the Lord, it says in his old age, he kind of lost the plot. Many wives were a distraction from him, and these wives worshipped other gods, and that led him to worship other gods, and he stopped fearing God. In other words, he became a fool. And God appears to him and says there's going to be consequences, and there were. Israel never again in all of the Old Testament experiences the glory that it experienced in the reign of Solomon. His failure was the failure for the people. But that doesn't mean that God's people lose hope because this was only a type. This was only a foretaste pointing to something greater that's beyond. And so so when you get to the prophets generations later, as they continue to wait, they're the keepers of the promises. And Isaiah speaks and he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of David, stump of Jesse. Jesse is just David's father. So he's saying there's going to be coming a son of David. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. There is going to be a king who will come and he will be wise. Consider the story that we're told in the Gospels of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, Jesus is is said to be, as he is young, he grows daily in wisdom and in stature. In his ministry, at one point, he says, people from all over the world came to see Solomon. And now one who is greater than Solomon is here before you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's like, I am. I am the wise leader that Solomon pointed forward to. And if we study the story of Jesus, we see that, don't we? Jesus saw through 
everything. There was never a person who walked in this earth more wise than Jesus. He was never caught off guard by anyone. He was never done in by flattery or deception. He saw, he knew how to respond. He saw himself completely. He feared God completely. And in every way, he obeyed reality. Even when reality meant that what it meant for him to save his people was to go to the cross, he did what was necessary because he was so wise. That's why Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And Jesus also says in Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the one who hears my words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Do you remember that? We, you know, as a little kid, you probably learned the story. Wise man builds his house upon the rock. But here it is saying, the one who hears my words and does them is a wise man. I am the one who will give you insight into reality. If you allow me to teach you, to reshape you, I will make you wise. That's what he's saying. When Jesus steps in to redeem you, we talk about that, about how when we've placed our faith in Christ, Jesus starts working on us. And that work doesn't finish until, until we either die or Christ returns. And we oftentimes think about how when Jesus is doing work on us, he is helping us to be more loving, he's helping us to have more faith, and those things are true. But let me tell you also, he is bringing you back to reality so that you can be wise. That's part of what he is doing in your life. Just as an aside, you know, sometimes I think there can be this fear in the church when people start asking questions or expressing confusion. Maybe you yourself find yourself feeling sometimes unsure about things about the Bible, and you're just kind of asking questions, and they're honest questions, and you're maybe even experiencing doubts at some times. And sometimes I think the, the church can respond by saying, just stop thinking about it, stop asking those questions. All you need to do is just believe. And let me say, that's not actually where Jesus would take you. Now, if, sometimes questions aren't honest questions. Sometimes questions are just ways of trying to keep God at a distance. But sometimes our questions are honest, and we're earnestly trying to understand. And let me say, that is exactly what Christ wants to be doing in your life. He is bringing you towards reality. And that means allowing you to ask questions, allowing you to express doubts, and through that, Christ draws you to himself so that you might realize that he is able to withstand all of your doubts and all of your questions. Jesus is not about us shutting off our minds. He's about us bringing us back to reality. And as he does that, that means he's about making you wise and making a difference in what you do. Because that's what we see about wisdom. Wisdom in Solomon changes every aspect of who he is. Jesus does make us into better business people. You know, we, we said before about one of the key mistakes that people in businesses will make when they're making decisions is they try to hide from themselves unpleasant truths. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is that so often we put our identity in what we do. We gain our worth from how effective we are. And so we really want to hide from ourselves the fact that we are failing. Sometimes it's also just fear. If we admit a mistake, we don't know what's going to happen to us. And so we hide it. But see, in Christ, you are brought back to reality. 
In Christ, you realize that your identity is not in what you do. You are a child of God, a child of the King. And whether you fail here or there, that doesn't change that. And being in Christ means you don't need to be afraid because you know you have God as your Father, and whatever happens, He will continue to take care of you. And that means you are opened up to be honest about problems and respond appropriately. Christ gives you wisdom to do business better. And Christ gives us wisdom to do science, to do, to do care. If you are you know, a doctor or a therapist or someone in the medical profession, you are able to see people differently from everyone else. You, you realize that these people are not just organisms that you need to fix, and they're not just clients who are paying you. They are people who are made in God's image that you are called to respect and to love, and that changes how you care for them. And what's more, it changes the way that you view your role in their lives. I mean, there are sometimes some of you in these fields, I mean, whether you are counseling someone who is suicidal, or maybe you are providing, doing surgery on someone whose life is touch and go, it can be an easy thing to be terrified by the responsibility that you feel is in your hands, but but you know that ultimately, whatever you do, this person isn't ultimately in your hands, but in the hands of God the Creator, and that can free you from fear and enable you in that moment to be a better therapist or doctor. See, Christ brings you back to reality and changes how you do things. Or again, if you are in art or in music, you don't have to think that this is just some accident of evolution that we find certain things to be pleasant you're able to see that beauty comes from God who is himself beautiful. And beauty is God showing his grace and kindness. And as you're paying attention to beauty and trying to depict it yourself, you are reveling in the love of God. And that changes the way that you do art. So the answer is yes, Jesus does make a difference in what you do because Jesus came not just to make you more righteous, but to make you more wise, to make you more whole in every aspect of your life. And that means that following Christ is supremely practical. That however you find yourself lacking, the answer is to let Jesus continue to do his work on you as he is renewing you, as he is repairing you, as he is reshaping you. To hear his words and to do them. And that begins, if we're wanting to open ourselves up to what Jesus is doing, simply by learning how to ask him for help and trusting in his promises. And so even now, let's, let's take a moment to do that. Probably we can think in our week of how we have not always lived in the fear of God. We have not treated God as God. We have lived in denial of reality. And so it's good for us even now to take a moment and to confess our sin, not because we feel the need to just kind of sit in the filth of our wrongdoing, but because by doing this, we're bringing them before God, we're bringing them before Christ, and we're saying, Jesus, I need you. And we're opening ourselves up to let Jesus do his work in us. So let's take a moment to confess our sins quietly together, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Lord God, in your Son is the fullness of all wisdom. And yet we confess that we have leaned on our own understanding instead of what we have through Christ. Like Solomon, our hearts are turned away from you, and we often are fools. Lord, we can be selfish, we can be proud, where wisdom is found in humility before you and loving you and our neighbor. And so we confess our foolishness, we confess our sin, and we ask again that you would lead us towards Christ. We thank you for the work that Jesus already is doing in us. We thank you that as foolish as we are, we are wiser now than we used to be through Christ. And we pray that you would continue to renew us, continue to make us whole, that we might enjoy the joy of wisdom that we have through Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. Micah writes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham as you've sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. Hear the good news, friends. God has shown his faithfulness to his covenant of old through his son, our King Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.